During Advent and Christmas, through our carols, our scripture readings, devotionals, and sermons, we highlight a name that was given to Jesus at his birth, Emmanuel, which means God with us. But was Emmanuel a brand brand new idea that arrived with Jesus, or had it been there all along? This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show here on the fifth day of Christmas. I'm Alex Goodwin with Paul Kemnitty and Glenn Powell. If you're a regular listener, you know that we've embraced this idea that the Bible should be viewed first and foremost as kind of a multi-act drama. So today we want to explore how the theme of God with us began in the Bible story and then got transformed as the story moved forward. Right, Alex, as we want to get this correct, I think we have to see that the Bible begins as a temple story specifically. The the account of the creation of the world at the Bible's opening is all about God making a new space, a place he wants to live in together with the creatures he's made. That's what the idea of resting on the seventh day is all about. When a deity rests in the ancient Near East, It's a reference to a God taking up residence in their newly built temple. So this is the idea we see, for example, in Psalm 132, where it says, For the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever, he said. I will live here, for this is the home I desired. So the bit about humans being made in God's image reflects another feature of ancient temple building. There was always an image of the God placed in a temple. So in the context of ancient culture, Genesis presents an amazing scene. Here is a temple with a living image of the God in it, not a statue made of wood or stone like in the pagan temples. The image in God's newly built temple is breathing, is alive. Hmm. What we can see from all of this is that God's first and continuing intention is to live together with us in his creation temple, God with us. So in a sense, Emmanuel is what the whole story has been about since the very beginning. Yeah, that's good, Glenn. And, you know, I think it's important when we're reading these first pages of Genesis to understand that in the ancient world, there was zero concept of a God living, you know, with the humans. The gods lived in the heavens. And uh, they were capricious, and they were mean, and uh, in exchange for good crops and healthy animals, they demanded human flesh and blood, and, you know, rivers of it. Um, So when when we Westerners read, you know, Genesis 1, you know, kind of immediately we want to go into the debate about whether the earth was completed in six literal days. But I think we can be pretty certain that those first hearers of uh, Genesis, when they're listening to this story, and they hear that God comes down and cohabits with the humans, I mean, they're pretty dumbfounded uh, about that, what what that concept uh, is. So if if you think about today, um, you know, still the the idea of a, a distant deity, I think, has somewhat of a foothold even in our Western world. So atheists may be a minority, but I think the majority of people, even those who claim some sort of a relationship with God, have a very difficult 
time getting their heads around the idea of a God who is intimate with humans. And many think of him as a far off being, created the world, and then kind of left it to its own devices, something that we call deism. And it's important, I think, in this conversation to know that that idea is summarily dismissed from the very outset of the Bible story. And in the very first book, in the very first pages, you know, the key point, God acts decisively to secure our world as his home. And, uh, and he's, he's not a distant deity. And it was a wonder to the people of that day. And it's a wonder that needs to be recaptured today. So as the story continues, of course, God's vision for linking arms with the humans to build a flourishing world, it doesn't last. In fact, hardly before, you know, the story has even gotten off the ground. There's this great rupture in the story. And, you know, God isn't, you know, uh, just come see, come saw about it either. He's broken. He's filled with grief that his creatures have become violent and destructive, the people that he made to be his, his image bearers. And so he goes absent from his temple. He's no longer tangibly um, with, with the creation. And the whole kind of Emmanuel phenomena is temporarily suspended. Yeah, and we, again, talk about the Bible as a story. And people who study stories and are experts in stories say that it's, things aren't really a story without conflict in them. So all good movies and novels and stories of all types are about this protagonist, usually, who wants something or who's trying to overcome something that's gone wrong. And we see very early on in the Bible that there's this central conflict of a God who wants to overcome this great rupture, right? In order to reclaim and recover what his original intention was, which is being um, with his image bearers. So from this point on in the Bible, it, it looks like pretty much every action of God is centered on this big plan uh, to overcome this conflict, to restore his creation temple so that he can take up residence and be with his image bearers again. Right. Absolutely right, Alex. And I think um, if you just kind of mentally think about the big story of the Bible for a moment, think about all the places in the Bible where God is making incursions back into his intended temple, working to be with us once again. I think this framework or this grid helps us understand what God's doing as the story moves along. So he comes down and he appears to the patriarchs to establish his covenant. He hears Israel's suffering, crying in Egypt, so he comes down to help his people. He instructs them to build a tabernacle so he can live right in their midst. His presence is visible in a cloud and pillar of fire to guide and protect his people. Then he ushers Israel into the promised land, which is a renewed version of the Garden of Eden, where he can live with his image bearers once more. So just like you said, Alex, it's like at every step, God is working to overcome the impediments to his original vision. So once they get in the new land, the tabernacle will become a more permanent temple in Jerusalem, the place where God chooses to make his home right in the midst of his people. So this God with us theme is everywhere and it's continuing. And it's really what's driving the story forward, you could say. So, so far, so good, right? But then, of course, the children of Israel continue to carry on the rebellion of Adam. And they fail to live as worthy image bearers 
of the Lord of the temple. So they are sent into exile. God cannot live in a defiled temple. So in a very dramatic scene, God's presence arises and leaves the temple. Emmanuel is gone. God is no longer directly present with his people like he was earlier. He's not visibly living among them. The Jerusalem temple itself is burned to the ground, and the great rupture, I think, rather than Emmanuel, seems to have won the day within the story. Yeah, you, 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 we would wish, you know, that, um, you know, there was the original vision, the rupture, and then things started to just get better and better, and Emmanuel right. became a more consistent theme. But, you know, the further you get into the First Testament, it's pretty clear that this is not a linear story and not some sort of upward progression, you know, towards right. God's intentions. And so, you know, really even late in the First Testament story, there are huge questions about the future uh, of the story. And so God's next move is to ordain a series of prophets who, you know, in the gap are urging the nation to keep the faith. You know, Yahweh is going to return. He will forgive. He will cleanse. You know, he's going to restore his people. People are going to live in God's garden again, and he's going to be with them again. But that's kind of how the First Testament ends. It ends with promises, but not with real signs of the reality of God's reconstruction project and God being regularly present with his people again. So the end of the First Testament, you know, the reality isn't, you know, the Emmanuel phenomenon. It's actually another I word. <laughs> it's the Ichabod reality. And mm, if you're yeah. a word that Hebrews were very, very familiar with, woven into their story where God left them and the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant was, you know, an image or a part of his presence. And, you know, Ichabod was the glory of the Lord, you know, has departed. And that's mm, really mm. how the first testament ends with a promise, but with the glory still gone. Yeah, just a comment on that. I think I think Paul that that a lot of people just don't know that they should read the Bible kind of with this opening framework in mind. I, I think they just have this idea that, yeah, there's a creation story, um, you know, and then there's a fall, and then there's these other events, and they kind of stand alone, and they don't allow kind of the opening framework to kind of govern their interpretation of the whole rest of the story, which is about God with us in the place that he made to be his home. And I think uh, it's a big breakthrough to kind of like start reading the Bible with this framework in mind, like all the time. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's when we start reading the Bible without understanding this central framework that, you know, we get into kind of these endless controversies. And, yeah, you know, Paul, like side issues. Yeah, you know, Paul warns, yeah. uh, you know, Titus of that, I guess. And, you know. Yeah, he, he says, "Keep the main thing. Don't be involved in these endless controversies." And right. um, when you don't know the framework of the story, the soil is just kind of ripe to, you know, take in these bad seeds, and they begin to germinate, and then we're off mm -hmm. thinking about all kinds of 
of silliness. Yeah, and just to step back just a second until to uh, to what you were talking about, Glenn, specifically with the tabernacle, and I think also with the temple. There's this just enormous passage. Um, I think what is it towards the end of Exodus and maybe beginning of Levit- Leviticus, I think, where they talk about the building of the tabernacle specifically, and you know, just being real, it takes forever mm-hmm. to get right. through. Like it does. there's it the does. instructions. And then it gets repeated as they talk about them building the tabernacle. And then it gets repeated again as, you know, they kind of describe what they just did. Um, And, you know, all these detailed specifications for how to make it. But you look at it and there's all these parallels back to the creation story, right? There's all these sort of natural elements from the original um, Garden of Eden and that sort of thing. I'm not... I'm admittedly not as familiar with the temple building one. I think it's fairly similar, right? Where there's all these um, yeah, instructions I mean, for all the building symbolism, lamp stands and stuff. Right, right. Like the entryways yeah. built like, you know, fabulous trees and plants, animals carved yeah. in um, along the side of the walls, the the doorway that as you go in. It's like you're entering into the Garden of Eden again when you go into the yeah. temple, which is exactly what they were trying to convey is that this is a right. restoration of God's creation and it starts where he's present is within his yeah. temple yeah 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 and so you 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 can look at it one way and just say man these uh israelites are like super type a where they need to <laughs> go over this three different times to talk about everything they did but i think yeah. the um the amount of time that they spend describing those things is significant because they're these little um kind of entry points back into what god always wanted Correct. When, cool. yeah, anytime something is repeated like that, we'd have to say, now, why would they say that three times? Right. It's right. clearly to highlight its importance of some key idea. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, uh, we're going to move ahead to the New Testament. But before we do get to that, I think it's also worth remembering this gap, right, between the two Testaments, mm. these hundreds of years that passed between uh, the end of the First Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. What was it like, 400 years? Something like that. Yeah, from the time of Malachi to to the birth of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you think United States is roughly two hundred and fifty years old. So like the the age of our nation isn't even close to how far that gap was. Right. And so you just have this phenomenon of generation after generation wondering and hanging on to these promises and. Um, you know, just hoping that the story hadn't taken some unexpected turn away from what God had promised. Um, and, and it's just kind of this period of waiting. And then we come to the new Testament with this whole sort of built up angst and this whole backstory in mind. And it helps us grasp the significance of this arrival of the promised Messiah. So there's this famous prophecy in Isaiah and says, you know, Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew just has this stunning proclamation that that's, that's what's happening. That's what happened. And God is finally actively and decisively working to reclaim his initial goal of living with his image bearers. So, and this is, you know, the first major step, this, this baby born, this child born in Bethlehem. Right. So this celebration of Christmas is this, you know, I just think it's the case where the more you know of the backstory, the richer the meaning is when the time comes. And so 
Uh, it's amazing how the birth of Jesus brings so many threads together of the work that God has been doing all along, not least this idea of Emmanuel or God with us. So basically the meaning is the temple of God is being rebuilt, but in a surprising way. So this is, according to the Bible, this is like the whole hinge of human history here where God is reestablishing what he wanted from the start, and he's come down. It's also remarkable to me how often the language is, um, the cries of humans go up, and God's response is to come down. He comes down to the patriarchs, he comes down in the Exodus, makes his home with his people, and now in the Christmas story, God is coming down kind of once again. So earlier, God had been with his world, you could say, episodically in the first part of the story. There were incursions where he comes down. Um, but now he's coming into the world at a whole new level. He comes as a human. Emmanuel is not just nearby. It's not like God's house is down the street. Emmanuel now becomes embodied in human flesh. This is the remarkable new kind of whole new level of meaning of the word Emmanuel. God with us has become God is us. I mean, that's just, that's just incredible yeah. to me that like, he doesn't so just cool. want to live among yeah. us. He actually wants to be us, right? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's an amazing idea that, and that's really what's happening with the Christmas story. Mm. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Was that, is that original with you, Glenn? God with us has become God is us. Uh, nothing's original with me. All I do is repeat what I learned from <laughs> smarter people, but I haven't seen that exact wording, I guess, anywhere else. Yeah. Well, you, you should, you should, you know, secure the copyright for some t-shirt <laughs> manufacturing right. yeah, because that, that, that right. is, that is, that is stunning. God with us has become God is us. And, um, you know, really that's, that is the message that kind of rings out in, in what we think of as the Christmas story at Jesus' birth, when the angel chorus appears to the shepherds, you know, with good news, and this is good news of the highest order. And just like the story of Genesis, this was totally unexpected. The uh, Jewish imagination of a Messiah was a human, maybe a superhuman, right. but a human nonetheless. He was going to be a king from the line of David. And so this long-awaited Messiah has come at last, and wonders of wonders, the Messiah is God, and it's God with skin on. And, mm. you know, I love Eugene Peterson's, you know, colloquial, colloquial expression in a John's Gospel, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And mm. so, yeah. you know, the story begins... Um, you know, really not with the cross in mind, although the cross is going to become, is going to enter into the story. But the story begins as this new solidarity with human beings. Yep. And it, it changes everything in the story. And the writer of Hebrews talks about it when he says, you know, we have now a high priest who understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same, you know, testings that we do. and. You know, I'd love to make a plea here at the Christmas season, you know, for our modern theology. Can we include this facet of Jesus in mm. our gospel story? Right. Uh, and there, you know, these theological mm -hmm. camps 
that can only think of Jesus taking on a body as a vehicle for future sacrifice. And yes, the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world is the heart and the soul of our gospel. We never want to lose that. But this, this, this other element of his solidarity with us, yes, someday in the renewed world, but what the writer of Hebrews is saying right here and now as humans needing another bigger human who understands our weakness. And, um, you know, this is where we, we desperately need God. So when we preach the gospel, um, let's include this part of God with us in, uh, in that story. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this part is particularly important with me this year. Um, so the loss of my wife, Jane, exactly six months ago yesterday, um, it, to have a Jesus who comes into the world as a God who laments himself. So God is with us, not just in general, but particularly as a grieving person. So we hear several times in the Gospels, actually, that Jesus weeps. He understands us because he has joined us. Until his creation temple is fully restored, God himself is not afraid to be counted among those who cry in pain and loss. And so, again, just like you say, Paul, I don't think we should underestimate the importance of this solidarity with the human experience that we read about when we read the story of Jesus. He is, he is truly with us at a very deep level, including the level of grief. Um, so with the coming of Emmanuel in this completely new and deeper sense, we now know for sure where the story is headed. Emmanuel will suffer and die. The temple of God in the flesh is destroyed, but then in three days it is rebuilt, raised from the dead. Jesus is God's new temple. God's new temple is now indestructible through the resurrection. He is with us forever. As it turns out, the original vision in Act 1 of the story, uh, when God made this world his dwelling place, comes to full bloom in the final act of the story. This temple building, you could say, is the core narrative of the whole Bible. It's very clear the story is more about God coming to be with us here than about us going up to be with God. God's forever home is his new creation. Which is why I think when you get to the, the final vision in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, it says explicitly there was no temple, because the entire new heavens and new earth is the temple. So God now lives with us the way he intended from the very beginning. So here we are, yep. living in this time between the two comings of Emmanuel. Matthew's gospel begins with the announcement of Emmanuel's imminent arrival. And it ends with Jesus saying, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Matthew bookends his entire gospel with the proclamation, God is with us. Then we look at the rest of the New Testament. Yeah. It, it is, again, like we could spend a whole podcast on this idea that it, the language then switches for the first time in the whole Bible and talks about Christ being in us and us being in Christ. So this in language is a new breakthrough in the Bible story where God actually dwells within us, and we become temples. So th there's no closer way to, be, to, be, to have God with us than to live within each other. Our lives are so tied up. I think 
it just shows that this idea of Emmanuel gets deeper and deeper as the story goes on. So this this in-between age we live in is a time of both celebration and disaster, but God is never not with us. This, I think, is what is the promise and the reality of Christmas. Yeah, well, that feels like a good word to end on. And we certainly want to wish our listeners a blessed Christmas season. We're so grateful for you listening to the show, sending us your questions, leaving ratings and reviews, and also becoming, some of you, supporters of the Institute Bible Reading. So thank you for all of that. We think it's been a, uh, a really fun year. Finally, this is your last chance to join Changemakers and have a year's worth of your monthly gifts matched by a generous donor. So the matching gift ends on December 31st. So if you'd like to sign up to support our work with a monthly gift, you can do that over at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode and for 2021. Thank you all again for a great year and we'll see you next year.